Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, DashPass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With DashPass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites. What I really love is how quickly DashPass pays for itself. On average, it takes just two orders, which makes it a no-brainer investment for your budget. And as if that weren't enough, DashPass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience. You get all this for only $9.99 a month, which is a small price to pay for unlimited convenience and savings. My family and I have had DoorDash for the past year or so, and while I make most meals at home, I don't know that I could mom without it. I used it twice just this past week while we were dealing with a stomach bug at home, and it was so nice to have and to be able to focus on getting better and not running all over town to pick everything up for everyone. Don't wait. Sign up for DashPass now and unlock a world of possibilities, all from the comfort of your home. DashPass from DoorDash, delivering joy, convenience, and savings straight to your doorstep. Get more from delivery for less with DashPass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for DashPass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. Hey guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder Podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Doing really good. We had a nice cold day today. I I wasn't expecting it for some reason. Yeah, I know. Before we started recording, I was like, are we going to talk about the weather? And I was like, probably so, because sorry. it is cold. I'm sorry. Yes, it's been cold here in Florida. Well, cold for us. I think being in the 50s is about as cold as I like it during the day. I don't like it, but I mean, if it was any colder, I really would not like it. So, Yeah. I rode my bike this morning and I was like, well, if I wear a jacket, I'm going to be, you know, too warm. And then I went and I was like on my way back to my house and I was like, I I will never do this again. I was so freaking cold and my hands were cold. And I walked in, my husband's like, you didn't make it very far. I was like, yeah, I'm freezing. I'm absolutely (laughs) freezing. This was a terrible idea. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I'm getting tired of the cold weather. Well, you know, January, I feel like is always the worst for us down here. I think a lot of places, January is just the height of winter. So it's just not very nice. I mean, this morning, you know, it was really cloudy and kind of windy on top of being in the 40s. So yeah, it's just been miserable. We're miserable too, just like everybody else up north having a winter time. (laughs) We absolutely know what you're going through. We have two days of this and it'll be back in the 80s. And my goodness, we get it, guys. We really get it. (laughs) All right. So we'll get right into the episode this week then. This is the second episode of the new year. And This one might just be as wild as the story that we shared last week for our first episode of the new year. 
This one also has a lot going on, and it ends with a man's tragic murder. We've talked about a number of murders that were fueled by affairs, and in this week's story, the racy details that led to the shooting of a 31-year-old Air Force captain are riveting and impassioned. We're working on our I was going to say, did you get a word of a day calendar? That's really I impressive. I didn't, but you said you did, so I felt uh, I inspired. Did. Yeah, I felt inspired to use some different words. Yeah. Yeah. Our friend Carly sent it to me. She's like, you probably got about eight of these. I'm like, no, this is the only one I got, and I'm doing really well with it. I'm excited. See, I'm not even using any of my words. I'm not doing right. it right. <laughs> next week. Next week. So the idea of marrying your high school sweetheart is really romantic and pure, but I think we can all agree that it's not a terribly common occurrence. It was more common in the 70s and earlier decades when the average age of a first-time bride was just 21 years old, but now less than 2% of all marriages are actually to a high school sweetheart, which I don't know why. Yeah, I don't know why I thought it would be higher. I didn't think it would be like the vast majority, but... I thought it'd be more than 2%. That's really low. I would have given it about 10%. Yeah, at least. Didn't you think? Yeah. Huh. Weird. Right. But Marty and Michelle Fear defied the odds, and they did just that. The young couple first met in high school when they were just 15 and 16 years old. Marty Thier was one grade higher than Michelle, but they caught each other's eye and a romance blossomed between them. Marty was born in Germany in 1969, but he was raised by his mom, Linda, in Colorado. He never knew his father, who we assume was still in Germany, so there's very little known about him except for the fact that he had been diagnosed with schizophrenia, but Marty's grandfather stepped in to fill the father figure role in his life. Michelle was a Texas native born in 1970 and raised in Colorado by her parents, Anne and Thomas, who was in the Air Force. They divorced when Michelle was a teenager, pretty close to the time that Michelle and Marty first kind of set their sights on each other. Marty was charming and handsome and would be considered a catch to most girls. So Michelle was pleasantly surprised and flattered to learn that Marty was actually interested in her too. They became attached at the hip, and by the time Marty was graduating, they couldn't imagine not being together as a couple. But Marty had plans to enlist in the Air Force, which meant that he wouldn't be staying in Colorado very long after graduation. He enlisted in the Air Force on May 29, 1991, and would eventually reach the rank of captain, working as a C-130 pilot. In an effort to stay close to Marty, Michelle also enlisted in the Air Force, and she enlisted as um, an Air Force Reserve. Right after high school, she served 12 months for Operation Desert Shield and became a tech sergeant. During this time, Marty was in the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. Almost as soon as Marty graduated from the academy, he proposed to Michelle, and they were quickly married. They were 20 and 21 at the time of their wedding. But Michelle would have to put her fairy tale newlywed dreams aside, because shortly after the wedding, Marty was sent to flight school at Vance Air Force Base in Oklahoma. Michelle, of course, went with her new husband, and over the next several years, she moved with him wherever the Air Force told them to go. In 1992, the couple moved back to Denver for Marty to attend flight op school, and when that was completed, he was sent to Falcon Air Force Base. The couple settled in this area for a bit while Marty worked on his master's degree and Michelle finished her bachelor's. Although she had put her education on pause while she moved around with her new husband, she did receive a BA in psychology and sociology. A short time later, Marty obtained his master's degree, and the couple moved to sunny Florida and lived in Melbourne, near where Marty was stationed at Patrick Air Force Base. 
Once a couple was settled in Florida, Michelle began attending grad school at Florida Institute of Technology, studying clinical psychology. By this time, the couple had been married a few years, and things weren't quite as exciting as they had been during their high school puppy love sort of stage, probably a lot due to the time that the couple spent apart. Marty was always gone, either flying or deployed, and Michelle was devoting much of her time to finishing her education. But when Marty was sent on a long deployment in Kuwait during their second year in Florida, it started to really bother Michelle. Here she was, this young and newly married woman who wanted to spend time with the love of her life, but because of their busy and hectic lifestyle and schedules, that made it really nearly impossible. She felt really lonely and fell into sort of a funk about it while Marty was away on this particular deployment. To make matters worse, Michelle really didn't have a support system in Florida. She was a long way from Colorado, and because they had moved so frequently, Michelle really hadn't had the opportunity to make friends away from her home state. Any friends I had who were in the military or their spouses were in the military, that to me always seemed like the hardest part. For sure. Where by the time you meet friends, then you're moving or they're moving because a lot of times your your community is, you know, Air Force or whatever branch of the military you're in. And so somebody's leaving all the time, and that seemed really I'm not a very social person and I like to keep to myself, but it would be hard to be in a new situation and have no one and know all of my family so far away. So Definitely. I can see how that would be super, super hard. So when Marty wasn't around, though, Michelle felt like she was truly alone. She continued to work towards her master's degree and finished in 1997. But in the next couple of years, she continued to feel more and more detached from her husband that she was once so in love with. In 1999, the couple experienced their first taste of real marital trouble when Michelle saw something on Marty's computer that led her to believe that he was having an affair with somebody he met on the internet. Michelle was obviously very upset about this, and it became a big crack in their marriage. Later that same year, Michelle finished her doctorate degree in clinical psychology and took an internship in Alabama, and at the same time, Marty learned that he was being transferred to Moody Air Force Base in Valdosta, Georgia. So the young couple actually parted ways temporarily, and they lived in separate states. This experience opened Michelle's eyes to the fact that she kind of liked living on her own and away from Marty. He preferred their house to always be clean and tidy, and Michelle realized how much she disliked being the one to kind of, you know, keep up with that and to clean up after him and to always make sure their home was, you know, spotless. But after spending five months living apart, they ended up moving back together again to Pope Air Force Base near Fayetteville, North Carolina, which was actually their sixth time moving in the eight years since they had been out of high Whoa. school. Yes, that is so much moving. Now that Michelle had obtained her doctorate degree, she was ready to stop moving around and finally settle down. She got a job in a doctor's office as a clinical psychologist, and she was hired as an adjunct faculty member at two nearby colleges. Just as she was starting to get into the swing of things with her new career that, you know, she's been working towards for years, Marty started talking of having children and really trying to persuade Michelle to go along with this idea. But Michelle did not want to have children and definitely not at this point in her life. As I said, she had just finished, you know, working towards her doctorate degree, which takes a long time. That takes a lot out of you. That's a lot of education. Yeah. You're in school for so long. I can understand why she kind of just wanted to, you know, get, you know, get her career started at this point. And she wasn't focused on starting a family at this time in her life. And I understand that. And I understand how Marty was like, well, this is what, 
you know, I want to do. So once her and Marty were living back together again, the issue of his exceptional tidiness and his preference to have everything clean all the time kind of renewed itself as an irritation to Michelle. It wasn't long before she found herself doing what a lot of people do. She turned to the internet to form a connection with somebody else. Since Marty and Michelle had spent so much time apart during their marriage, things weren't exactly as romantic and fairy tale amazing as they were in the beginning, and the couple had really lost their spark and in intimacy. Michelle's primary motivation online was to seek out men that she could hook up with. She created a profile under the screen name Married Brunette on a dating site that was specifically designed for people to really just find someone to have an affair with. So people that were probably already in committed relationships to have these affairs. So this was actually quite risky considering that under the Uniform Code of Military Justice, adultery is considered an illegal act and service members who commit adultery are subject to punishment by fines and even jail time. But Michelle was willing to really risk it all to satisfy her desires. One of her ads read, quote, Sexy brunette seeks rendezvous man. Attractive, intelligent, very sensual professional seeks regular activity partner two to three times a week for long, hot, passionate encounters. Looking for emotionally stable, very attractive, physically fit, intellectually stimulating, fun-loving man who is not going bald. 25 to 35 Caucasian. Drug and disease-free, over six feet tall, must live or work in Fayetteville. I turn heads. If you do too and meet all of the above requirements, let's meet for coffee and see what happens next. We'll only respond to inquiries that are interesting and simulating. Discretion is a must, end quote. I just have to say one thing about this. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> okay, so I am in a lot of Facebook tag groups, and if you are on Facebook or the internet at all, then you you know what tag groups are, right? It's just like a funny yeah, yeah. phrase or whatever. But then sometimes the groups are actually active. So there's this one that I'm in that I follow, and it's called I am a rando on Tinder. These are my demands. And it's like people just screenshotting profiles they come across on dating apps, mostly Tinder, of course, right. where they like – the person has like like Michelle's ad here where it's so specific and it's like so many things like can't be going bald, has to be 25 to 35. Like they have all these demands for their – when I read this, I was like, this would be perfect for that group. Like, <laughs> Oh. <laughs> well, I read it with like she must know one person that fills this because that is so many things. Like she, she's not even going for the whole world. She's like in Fayetteville. Like you've right. already knocked down the population <laughs> significantly. And then I love that it's – an emotionally available man. Okay, well, that's going to knock it down even right. more. Like, there's a <laughs> We're talking about three people and then any of the physical stuff. Like, you're going to have to take what you get at this point, lady. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating, though, to read this and to hear what she was really looking for at this point. And it almost seems like she's just going opposite of what she has, like to try something different. I don't know. It was, it was, it was an interesting read for sure. I mean, Lots she definitely knows what she wants. We can give her that. <laughs> I mean, does she? Because I just, I truly think there might be a robot out there and that's it. And even the robot's like, I'm 36. I'm so sorry. I'm out of here. <laughs> it was a lot. So it really wasn't long before the interest started stacking up and Michelle was receiving dozens of responses to her ads. Would love to know the ratio of how many of those actually fit all of those, uh, all of that description. But for Michelle, though, this was really an exhilarating time, and she was excited to be getting this attention from men again, which was something she apparently felt like she was lacking. 
Little did she know her decision to seek relationships outside of her marriage to Marty would ultimately become a fatal choice. And we're going to get into so much more of this story after one quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. The new year is finally here and many of us are ready for a fresh, clean start. Our sponsor, Grove Collaborative, wants to help you kick off your resolutions for a healthier home by making it easy to shop for natural household products. I don't know about you, but sometimes the hardest thing about resolutions for me is really figuring out where to start. Luckily, Grove has everything you need right at your fingertips. 70% of people actually say they want to use natural products, but only 2% of them actually do. And that's in large part because what they sell in stores is from the biggest companies and not necessarily the ones that are the best for you. But that's okay because Grove makes it easy for you to get healthy, plant-based, non-toxic cleaning products at work. Grove is the online marketplace for sustainable home essentials, and they deliver directly to your doorstep. There's no need to drive all over town looking for dish cleaner here or paper towels there. Grove Collaborative makes it easy for you to find it all in one place. And if you're new to going green, that's okay. Grove Collaborative takes the guesswork out of it. You can browse their site for literally thousands of home, beauty, and personal care products that are all guaranteed to be good for you, your family, your home, and the planet. Join over 2 million households like mine that trust Grove Collaborative to make our homes happier and healthier. I'm a huge fan of Grove long before they sponsored the podcast. Grove is where I'm buying all my cleaning products for the house, and trust me, with my kids, I need a lot. I love that I can buy Mrs. Meyer's multi-surface cleaner and Grove hydrating hand sanitizer all in one spot, and best of all, without ever leaving the house. Not only is it high quality and effective, but I'm using healthy, plant-based, non-toxic cleaning products that actually work. Plus, shipping is fast and free on your first order. Make your home healthier this new year. For a limited time, when our listeners go to grove.co slash mm, you will get a free Mrs. Myers gift set, plus free shipping with your first order, a $30 value. But you have to use our special code. Go to grove.co slash mm to get this exclusive offer. That's grove.co slash mm. Step into the new year in style with our favorite shoes, Rothy's. Rothy's shoes are the creme de la creme and my honest-to-goodness go-to daily shoes, and for good reason. Rothy's comes in an ever-changing array of colors, prints, and patterns, and have so many styles from tennis shoes to flats to Mary Janes, but what makes them my personal favorites is how comfortable they are from the moment you put them on. Rothy's are seamlessly knit with thread made from plastic water bottles, which makes them ultra-comfortable from the jump with zero break-in period, just like shoes should be. Best of all, they are completely machine washable. When my shoes need a touch up, I just throw them in the wash and they come out as good as new, which is great because I wear them all the time. My Rothy's are so versatile, I can pair them with anything from yoga pants to dresses. I have two pairs of Rothy's tennis shoes in steel gray and bubblegum pink, and I'm always getting complimented on how cute they are. Meanwhile, I'm just enjoying how easy they are to keep clean and how comfortable they are as I go about my day. Rothy's also now carries bags and masks, and if you've ever had to carry around your kids' gummy worms or goldfish, you know how much you've dreamed of a machine washable bag. And now, Rothy's has them. Plus, they're stylish and have a great variety of colors and styles. Check out all the amazing shoes, bags, and masks available right now at rothys.com slash moms. That's rothys.com, R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash moms. Style and sustainability meet to create your new favorites. Head to rothys.com slash moms today. And now back to the episode. 
Before the break, we were just getting into how Michelle Thier was feeling really lonely in her marriage and lonely really where she was living away from all of her friends and family. And her solution to this was to create an online dating profile on a on a website specifically designed for people who are looking to have an affair and do this, you know, in secret and in private. So it was December 17th, 2000, when the consequences of Michelle's actions caught up with her in the most horrifying way. Michelle and Marty were headed out for a nice evening with Michelle's coworker, Heidi, and her boyfriend, Dominic. The four of them rode together to dinner in Marty's Ford Explorer and got a table at the Fox and Hound restaurant. After dinner, Marty drove Heidi and Dominic back to their car, which was still parked at the parking lot at Michelle's office. They arrived at around 10.30 p.m., and Heidi and Dominic got into their car and left, with Marty and Michelle trailing shortly behind them. Michelle and Marty stopped for gas a little while up the road, and while they were there, Michelle remembered that she actually forgot something at her office, and she needed to go back and get it for a class that she was teaching the following morning. So Marty drove her back to her office and then waited in the car while she went inside. Moments later, from inside of her office, Michelle heard the startling sound of gunshots outside. In a panic, she ran back out the door and saw her husband Marty laying on the ground after having apparently been shot. Michelle ran over to him and saw that he was unresponsive, but he was still breathing, and she frantically went to find somewhere that she could call for help. The door to her office building that she was just inside of had locked behind her when she ran out, so she wasn't able to get back inside, and she had to run about 200 yards to a video store to be able to use a phone. She arrived at the video store at 10.57 that night. The two employees that were working were actually in the back when they saw Michelle burst through the door on their security monitor, and they could see her leaning across the counter and shouting, asking for help, and saying, is anyone in here? Michelle was barefoot and covered in blood, and after having run from the parking lot to the store, she was out of breath and visibly shaken, and she could hardly even speak, but the store employees gathered that some kind of emergency had occurred, and Michelle was wanting them to call 911 for her. She was in a distraught state, as she told the dispatcher that her husband had been shot at a building down the street. She provided the address to the location, and then she handed the phone back to the video store employee and ran out the door to go back to where Marty was clinging to life in her office parking lot. A video store patron witnessed this chaotic exchange and followed Michelle to see if she needed any help. By the time they got back to the parking lot, Marty had no pulse, and police and paramedics were just starting to arrive. Michelle was kneeling over Marty and cradling his body when paramedics arrived. They had to pull her off of him so they could work on him. They observed wounds to his chest, left leg, head, and buttocks that were all gushing blood, and Marty had no vital signs. Despite the attempts to revive him, Marty was pronounced dead. He was just 31 years old. Officers asked Michelle to describe exactly what happened. She told them that her name was Michelle Thier and that she actually worked in that building, Her husband had just driven her to the office so she could get some things to take home with her and that she heard gunshots from inside and then found her husband on the ground. Michelle was assessed for signs of shock and deemed to be fine, so she was asked to wait in a police car. She told officers that she wasn't positive, but she may have seen someone fleeing the scene by running towards the bushes near the back of the building. A canine unit showed up a short while later to try and pick up a scent to follow in hopes that it would lead them to a suspect. The dog did pick up a scent and tried to track it for 19 minutes, but lost a trail near a golf course. 
So police thought that maybe someone could have gotten away, gotten into a car, and drove away from the area. Officers then canvassed the area and spoke to potential witnesses. One woman named Jacqueline McBride said she heard three gunshots at 10.50 p.m. A married couple named John and Amy Corner also heard three gunshots and thought they may have even heard a fourth gunshot moments later. Another witness said they heard four shots. I have a question. If you hear something weird, do you ever like take a mental note of the time? Because I am so weird. I do. do Yeah, I do. I'll just look and then I feel like a crazy person for doing that. But you just never know when you might have to relay that information to anyone. I don't know. It sounds kind of – I don't know. I feel like I I don't like to be paranoid like that. But yes, of course, I look at the clock whenever I hear something strange. (laughs) The problem is, is I feel like I hear things all the time every day. So the like my log of times is so just like 1158, 12.01, 12.04. Like you're not helpful whatsoever in this situation. But I'm trying. Right. (laughs) When Michelle was informed that Marty was dead, she became very emotional. Her face went blank, and she cried for the next 10 minutes straight. When she finally composed herself, she told police additional details that she'd forgot to mention when she first relayed her story. She told them that when she first went outside, Marty was still breathing but not talking, and that she actually went to the building next door first, but nobody was there. So then she tried a gas station on the corner, and they were closed, and that's when she finally made it to the video store that was still open. She agreed to let police perform a gunshot residue test on her hands and clothing, and the same test was actually performed on Marty. At some point, Sergeant Ralph Klinkscales arrived at the scene. He would be the lead investigator on the case, and he got right to work at gathering evidence and making notes. He first saw Marty's body in a pool of blood near the front passenger side of his Ford Explorer. His body was at the foot of a set of stairs that went up to Michelle's office. He was wearing dressy clothes, but specifically he had on a Christmas-themed tie and a pair of red sequin suspenders. He'd been shot once through his left forearm and into his chest, while another round went into his lower back, another into his right buttock, and another in his left thigh. He was also shot execution-style in the back of the head. Sergeant Klinkscales noticed two spent casings from a 9mm handgun next to the body. It was obvious to him that whoever had shot Marty had not done so in a robbery attempt because his wallet was found still with $66 of cash inside and he still had the keys to his explorer. As the detective continued to observe the scene, he noticed an interesting clue. There were tiny blood drops on the upper steps of the staircase as well as sequins from Marty's suspenders found on the second floor landing. The only way this made any sense would have been if Marty was actually at the top of the stairs when he was shot and then the shooter kept shooting at him as he fell down. And then once he was at the bottom, the shooter fired the final shot into Marty's head. But Michelle had no explanation for why Marty was at the top of the stairs at all. She said that he stayed in the car while she went up to her office and that it had only been a few minutes before she heard these shots. She said that it was possible that Marty got out of the car to come find her because she was taking too long or that he may have needed to use the bathroom, but she didn't really know why he got out of the car at all. Michelle was asked whether or not she owned a gun or had recently fired a gun, and she said no. She told the detective that she and Marty had recently hit a rough patch in their marriage, but they had been to counseling and they were working on things, and she said that she had no idea who would want to kill her husband. But... That was not entirely true. 
What Michelle Hatton mentioned is that she had recently met and began a relationship with the man that she had met online, which obviously would be very important to tell the police officers uh, right away, but she kept that from them. And as we mentioned before, earlier that year, Michelle had become so desperate for intimacy that she felt like she, you know, she wasn't really getting this from Marty, and so she created an internet profile seeking an ongoing affair. What investigators didn't know yet was that Michelle likely had every idea who would want her husband dead. Her online ad drew the attention of several men, but it was a man named John Diamond who would be the one to change her life. It was in February of 2000 when Michelle and John first connected through the dating site and their chat conversations quickly turned steamy and explicit. This was an extremely risky affair for John as well because he too was a serviceman in the army and married. He was 28 years old, over six feet tall, physically fit, and basically what Michelle considered her dream guy. He grew up in a military family and joined the army right out of high school. In the military, he attended many schools, including ranger, surveillance, repelling, air assault, and sniper. John married his first wife right after he enlisted in the army, and they had one daughter, but they later divorced, and then John married his second wife, Lourdes, while he was stationed in Panama in 1996. The couple also had a child together, a son, but they legally separated in November of 1999, about two months before John met Michelle online. Within the first several messages back and forth, the conversation turned sexual. They exchanged photos back and forth, and after a while, they just couldn't help themselves from meeting in person. Their connection online was intense, and they were ready to see if they had that same spark in real life. They first met up at a coffee shop, but quickly moved their encounter to a hotel room nearby where they, well, I think we all know what they did there. It was a very passionate encounter, and John was pretty much the opposite of Marty, and Michelle was just overcome with lust for him. She couldn't get enough and just could not wait to see John again, but she firmly reminded him that she was merely interested in sex and that she was a married woman with no intention of leaving her husband. She was strictly looking for casual fun. But after a while, John had a different idea in mind. He started to fall in love with Michelle and wanted more from her than just random meetings for sexual encounters. He started to send her love messages where he'd tell her that he just didn't want to lose her and that he had never loved anyone the way he loved her. So keeping in mind, Marty is not in the picture while all of this is going on. He is away a lot of the time, so that made this affair really easy for Michelle to continue. But truth be told, she wasn't really even trying to hide it. When Marty was deployed, it was like John just jumped in and filled in his role. Everything was very out in the open, and Michelle would bring John to her house, around her neighbors, and she even referred to him as her fiancé when she talked about him to other people, which is crazy to me if she's talking to people who know that she is married and her husband is away, and now she's got this other guy, and she's like, oh yeah, this is my fiancé. Like, I'm surprised more people weren't like, what? (laughs) Like, what's going on here? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it didn't seem like, yeah, she didn't seem to really care or was too concerned with it whatsoever. Yeah, and John also told his friends about the affair. It seemed as though it was really just Marty and Lourdes, who's John's legal wife. They were the only ones who didn't know about this affair. In fact, Michelle and John were so brazen that they even started attending swingers parties together as a way to add even more excitement and risk to their affair. But when Marty was home, Michelle tried to mend their relationship, and she said that no matter what she did, they just kept hitting roadblocks. Meanwhile, this love affair with John was fiery and really passionate, as we said, and it kept Michelle pulled in. 
As she started to pull more and more away from Marty, he sensed that the situation was becoming desperate. So the couple went to counseling in the summer of 2000. But just days after their first session, Michelle actually moved out of their home and she moved into her own apartment. It was clear that Marty was the more interested party when it came to fixing the marriage with Michelle. And this idea was really reinforced on July 6th when Marty was the only one to show up for a scheduled counseling session that they were supposed to go to. Yes. Yikes. So Marty was really upset and, you know, he told the therapist that he didn't understand why Michelle was being like this and he figured that she just didn't love him anymore and he felt like, you know, he was the only one who wanted to work on the marriage. Even though Michelle appeared reluctant to put in the work and get help, she did attend counseling with Marty again a few weeks later on July 27th. But instead of this being, you know, a visit where they made some progress, things actually kind of got a little bit worse and Michelle started shutting Marty out even more by setting even stricter boundaries. Like she started insisting that he call before he showed up at her apartment, which I guess, okay, that's fine. If she wants her space and her privacy, I understand saying, Hey, give me a heads up before you come over. But she also had this other thing going on. So it's possible that she just didn't want Marty showing up when she had John over at her apartment. Yeah. So Michelle actually, um, despite working with this therapist, she never told the therapist about the affair that she was having, which again, it would be useful information for the therapist to know, not because they want to judge you, but they don't, they cannot help you if they don't have all the information. So she chose right. to keep to keep that to herself. The following month, August, Michelle and Marty sought the help of a chaplain on the Air Force base where they discussed their marital issues. In the second session with the chaplain, Michelle confronted Marty about her suspicions that he had had an affair over a year earlier. At that point, that's whenever she found that suspicious stuff on his computer. Marty admitted that he did look at other women online, but he said that he never actually slept with anyone. After hearing all of the issues that the couple was facing, the chaplain felt that he wasn't equipped to handle their needs. I do appreciate that he was like, can't do this go right. to somebody else instead of like trying to take it on his, his, himself if he couldn't. So Michelle ends up going to a psychiatrist by herself and she laid out everything that was going on in her life. And at that point she was diagnosed with depression and prescribed several medications, including Celexa, Paxil, Xanax, and Clonopin, as well as the sleep aids Ambien and Sonata. Over the next few months, Michelle continued to sort of halfway work on her problems with Marty, but she was still seeing John nearly every day. He had all but moved in with her by September, and they, of course, continued to have this affair. At the end of September, Michelle decided to go back to Marty and give things another shot. But she quickly realized that she just really wasn't in love with him anymore and had even become, you know, irritated by him. She didn't think Marty was fun, and he never liked to go out and do things, which is something Michelle felt was missing in her life. Even those close to the couple noticed that things were very tense and that Michelle seemed very unhappy in her relationship. Her mother-in-law even saw Michelle once shrug off a hug from Marty. That has to be hard for the mother-in-law to see. Like, for sure, that's your yeah. Son's wife, yeah. So little did anyone around them know, but Michelle actually was fed up, and she was actively planning to divorce Marty. But she was waiting until he got his reenlistment bonus, which could be anywhere between sixty thousand to two hundred thousand dollars, before she dropped the bomb on him. In the meantime, she was planning everything else out in detail. She wrote out lists of the couple's assets and debts and determined how she thought they should be divided up in the divorce. She even put an application in for a job on the island of Saba in the Caribbean. So needless to say, she was ready to get out of there. Michelle truly already had one foot out the door. 
In September, she applied to the Saba University School of Medicine, and on her application, she marked that she was single and ready to start classes after the first of the year. The school contacted her, and she asked if it would be possible to go and visit the island and the school with her fiancé, John. The school even looked over John's transcripts to see if he could also transfer to Saba. At this point, John was invested in this idea of moving to the Caribbean with Michelle and living this dream life. He started looking for work as well and reached out to a scuba shop there. He said that he was moving there with his wife and needed to find work. On October 18th, Michelle and John arrived in Saba to take a tour. They were there until October 23rd and stayed in the hotel under the names Mr. and Mrs. Thier, which just drives me crazy. Like, it is one thing. I just can't, like, Michelle's audacity to, like, use this hotel and, like, using her husband's last name and she's staying there with this other guy. Like, that just, ugh, it's just, it's wrong on so many levels. Yeah. But something actually changed when they returned to the United States, and Michelle suddenly started feeling like John was smothering her, and she felt put off by him in the same way that she really had started feeling put off by her husband, Marty. John got to a point where he was sending Michelle love letters and sappy messages constantly, and he started to float the idea of moving away together when he left the military and wanting to have a family with her. But as we said before, this was not something Michelle really wanted. She didn't want that with Marty, and she definitely did not want it with John. She broke up with him on November 19th in an email in which she told him that she couldn't and was not going to move away with him when he left the army, and she said, quote, I truly mean it when I say I do not have the physical, emotional, spiritual, or mental energy to consider any such plan of action, end quote. So basically, she's like, we are not doing that. Do not get your hopes up. That is not going to happen. John was distraught when he found this out. He wrote desperate messages to try and get Michelle to reconsider, and he kind of threw a pity party for himself. And that worked for him temporarily. Michelle agreed to stay with him, but things weren't the same, and she found herself taking longer to respond to his texts and calls and just generally starting to, you know, be really disinterested in him. John noticed this difference too, but he tried to fix it with the one thing that Michelle was getting sick of, more affection. He started sending her even more smothering love messages. So Michelle was getting tired of this, but she agreed to let John take her to Raleigh on December 9th to celebrate her 30th birthday. They stayed one night there, and then they went back to Fayetteville the next day. John asked Michelle to meet up with him for coffee on December 10th, just a few hours after he dropped her off at home. But Michelle said, yeah, sure, I'll meet you for coffee, and then she never showed up. So John must have felt rejected at this point because the following day, December 11th, he wrote her an ominous email that read, quote, I signed my life insurance over to you two weeks ago. I'll make it look like an accident so there's no problem with the money. I wanted to spend my life with you, but since I'm so easily thrown away by you, I guess I'm not worth that much. So, oh, well, it was a hell of a ride. A friend is squaring me away with something. I'll take a few hours to think about my life and maybe write something. I will always love you and hopefully see you in another life. I love you, John. End quote. The following day, he contacted her again in another email stating that he attempted to take his own life three times, but he couldn't bring himself to do it because he knew how much that would hurt Michelle. He asked her why she wanted to stay with Marty when she was so miserable and said that he was going to get back together with his ex-wife, Lourdes. Well, they were still married, technically. They were legally separated. But he said they're going to get back together since Michelle was going back to Marty. But on December 17th, just days later, Marty was shot to death. 
And Michelle was claiming to the police that she had absolutely no idea who would have done this. And we're going to get into the rest of the story after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. If you're looking to start this new year off on the right foot, there's no better way than to start it off with a good night's sleep. As an adult, I would give up all my worldly possessions for a good night's sleep, but my kids, not so much. Especially my son. He acts like sleep is his mortal enemy. Thankfully, we now have Moshi to secure a good night's sleep for him and for me. Moshi is the number one sleep and mindfulness app for kids and for good reason. Moshi has hours of bedtime stories, mindful meditation tracks, and soothing music available at your fingertips. And these aren't those old stories your kids have heard a million times. They are completely original stories created by Moshi's multi-award-winning team of composers and writers. There's even exclusive stories that are narrated by special guests, including Patrick Stewart and Goldie Hawn. My son is so excited each night to hear these new stories. The only problem is that he rarely makes it to the end before he's asleep. But that means easier and quicker bedtimes for me, and then I can just get on with my night, and he's feeling better rested and feeling better all around. Download the Moshi app, spelled M-O-S-H-I, on App Store or Google Play Store and get access to a one-week free trial of Moshi Premium. If you're looking to change things up in the new year, look no further than America's number one meal kit, HelloFresh. HelloFresh is the easiest way to make you the dinner hero in your house. HelloFresh makes it easy to get nutritious, home-cooked meals on the table really, really easy and gives you great options like low-calorie, vegetarian, and family-friendly meals. Plus, HelloFresh has options. I don't know about you, but I rotate about the same seven meals every two weeks. But with HelloFresh, every week you have 23 plus weekly recipes that include a range of cuisines and ingredients. So there's always something new and exciting to try, even for the pickiest eaters in your house. This week we tried the salmon in a creamy Dijon chive sauce with roasted potato wedges and lemony zucchini. It was an instant hit in my house and HelloFresh amazed me once again with how much a meal can be elevated with just a delicious sauce and yummy vegetables. I made it in under 30 minutes and felt like a total professional in the kitchen, even though I'm still a bumbling novice. Speaking of novices, HelloFresh knows we're not all Michelin chefs, but they make it so easy to feel like one with their easy to follow recipe cards that include photos that help even those of us who still can't get boiled water down. Go to HelloFresh.com slash moms10 and use code moms10 for 10 free meals, including free shipping. Again, go to HelloFresh.com slash moms10 and use code moms10 for 10 free meals, including free shipping. Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, DashPass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With DashPass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites. What I really love is how quickly DashPass pays for itself. On average, it takes just two orders, which makes it a no-brainer investment for your budget. And as if that weren't enough, DashPass grants you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items, adding an extra layer of excitement to your DoorDash experience. You get all this for only $9.99 a month, which is a small price to pay for unlimited convenience and savings. My family and I have had DoorDash for the past year or so, and while I make most meals at home, I don't know that I could mom without it. 
I used it twice just this past week while we were dealing with a stomach bug at home, and it was so nice to have and to be able to focus on getting better and not running all over town to pick everything up for everyone. Don't wait. Sign up for DashPass now and unlock a world of possibilities, all from the comfort of your home. DashPass from DoorDash, delivering joy, convenience, and savings straight to your doorstep. Get more from delivery for less with DashPass. $0 delivery fees and reduced service fees on eligible DoorDash orders. Sign up for DashPass today and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. And now back to the episode. So before the break, John is writing Michelle, telling him how much you know, telling her how much he loves her and wants to be with her. Michelle is straight up ignoring him and saying she wants to get back with Marty. And meanwhile, Michelle's not telling any of this to the police that are investigating Marty's murder. Other than withholding all of this from the police, Michelle was very cooperative and compliant with police requests during this investigation. She allowed the officers to do everything they needed to do, including search the Explorer and look around Michelle's personal things. Her clothing was also collected as evidence. At 7 o'clock the following morning, Michelle's boss, Thomas Harbin, spoke with Detective Clink Scales and asked him to go over everything that happened the day before. For the first time, investigators learned about this missing piece of information that Michelle was really neglecting to share with them, which was that she had been having this affair. Mr. Harbin said he knew that Michelle was having problems with her husband, and Michelle spoke about being suspicious of Marty having an affair with some woman in Florida. She also told her boss to struggle with Marty wanting to have a family, but, you know, saying that she was still not interested in having kids. But that's when Thomas dropped the bombshell. He told the officer that Michelle confided in him that she was having an affair with a man named John about a month earlier. From what Thomas could remember, this man was a soldier at Fort Bragg and was possibly a trained sniper. This obviously set off alarm bells to the investigators who believed that this was a very good lead on Marty's potential murderer. So they kept digging. They interviewed Heidi and Dominic, who had been the last ones to see Marty and Michelle before the shooting. Heidi said that they were happy and relaxed, and they were even holding hands during the drive. When they were about to leave the restaurant, Michelle disappeared for a brief moment, and they assumed that she had gone to the restroom. When police asked if Heidi and Dominic knew anything about John, they said that they knew he was a friend of Michelle's and that he called the office the day before just looking for her. He allegedly told Heidi that he was looking for Michelle and was worried about her because she told him that her husband Marty had abused her. So John wanted Heidi or someone to call Michelle and check up on her. So clearly, this is a lot that's going on within this 24 hours leading up to Marty's murder. The police really just had to figure out how it all went together and what it meant for the investigation. Their next step was to talk to Michelle again. Officers went to her home at around 9.30 that morning to talk and get a more detailed story from her. When they asked, she did not deny her relationship with John. She said she dated him during the summer months, but that she had since broken off this relationship and gone back with her husband. She claimed that she'd broken off the romantic relationship with John, but that they agreed to remain friends anyway, which seems almost impossible in this situation. It's, For sure. That's, <laughs> I've heard of that people do that sometimes when they have breakups with, you know, exes and stuff. But in an affair situation, that seems like, whoa, that would be really, really difficult to do. But then she says something else that really raises red flags. 
She said that the last time she spoke to John was around 4 p.m. on the day of the shooting and claimed that that was just her talking to him about a mechanical problem that she was having with her car. But still, Michelle was very cooperative with the police, and she provided them with John's phone number when they asked how to get in touch with him. When the detective finally got a hold of John, he agreed to go down to the station for an interview on the following day, which would have been December 19th. During this interview, he told the police about his background and his credentials, and he told them that he'd seen the news of Marty's death on the news, but he didn't know a whole lot about it. But he did admit to police that he was in an intimate relationship with Marty's wife, Michelle, which also is a little strange to be like, yeah, I heard about that on the news. And oh, yeah, I am also having an affair with his wife. But like, just to be so casual about it, like, like, that's not, you know, as if that doesn't immediately sound really suspicious. Right, right. He told them all about how he met Michelle in 2000 when she put an ad out and they met for sex at hotels at least twice a month in the beginning. According to John, their relationship was still going on, and he told investigators that he actually went to lunch with Michelle the day of the murder. But interestingly, he said that he did not talk to Michelle or hear anything from her about her car problems that day, as she had told the police. John said he didn't personally own any guns, and he only used them for military training or at a shooting range where he sometimes rented handguns for practicing with. He showed receipts proving that he'd actually been to the shooting range on the morning of the shooting, practice firing what he said was a 9mm weapon. So the police decided not to swap John for gun residue because he already had just admitted that he had a legitimate reason to have it on him, so it wouldn't have made a difference. When he was asked to provide an alibi for where he was during the shooting, John claimed that he was at home that night with his wife and their son, as well as his mom-in-law, Priscilla. He said that they watched The Patriot and then went to bed at around 10 p.m. and he stayed home until the next morning. He did agree to let the police contact his wife, Lourdes, to confirm this alibi, but he asked them to allow him to call her and give her a heads up that they were coming. And he also asked that they not tell her about his affair with Michelle, which, again, I don't know how you think you're going to hide this when the police are clearly investigating you in a murder case. It just seems weird to be like, oh, yeah, but don't tell my wife that you're asking about all this because I had an affair with the victim's wife. Like, of course, they have to like tell her that. That's a huge yeah, yeah. part of the whole thing. Right? right. Little did they know, though, that when he actually called Lourdes to give her this heads up that they were coming, what he really gave her a heads up on was what she needed to tell the police when they came knocking. So Lourdes actually told the police the same story that they had watched this movie and then went to bed. She did say that she was a deep sleeper, though, and she wouldn't know whether or not John left after she was in bed. But she said that she could confirm that when she woke up at 8 o'clock the next morning, John was asleep in the kids' bedroom. As police worked to investigate Marty's tragic death, his family, friends, and fellow soldiers prepared to lay him to rest. The Air Force Memorial was held the Thursday after Marty was killed. Following the memorial, Marty's mom and members of Michelle's family met with investigators, but they really learned nothing of value. Investigators told them all they knew, which was really that Marty appeared to have been shot while he was at the top of the stairs, and then he fell to the bottom. Once the family had all been filled in, Michelle asked to have a private word with Sergeant Clinkscales. She wanted to go over her story once more and to clear up a few things. She said she had lied to them before about no longer seeing John and actually admitted that she was still seeing him and had even seen him recently since her husband's murder. 
She told him about her strained relationship with Marty and said that John was the only person she was having an affair with in North Carolina. She again stated that she called John in the afternoon about her car, and that's when the detective told her that they might pull her phone records and look through them. She then suddenly remembers another time that John's number just might have appeared on her phone records. She had called him from the Fox and Hound restaurant that night, shortly before they left. She said he did not answer the phone. Obviously, the police were very suspicious at this point, and Michelle was pretty much giving them everything they needed to know by confirming this theory that she and John may have worked together to murder Marty. Michelle was asked if she'd be willing to take a lie detector test and to wear a wire the next time she saw John, and she told them that she'd have to think about it. But police were already on to her. After this meeting, they never talked to her about the case again. Marty was laid to rest on December 28th at the U.S. Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. Back in North Carolina, the investigation into Michelle and Marty's marriage continued. Marty's former commander at Patrick Air Force Base told officers that back in 1997, Michelle had found pornographic content on Marty's computer, and that had been causing a problem in their relationship. In 2001, police received a tip about another affair that Michelle was engaged in at one point with a man named Charles McLendon. He also responded to her ad in early 2000 and met up with her but he stopped seeing her when he found out that she was also hooking up with other men at the same time. At this point, the police were suspicious of John and still felt that his alibi wasn't exactly airtight, so they contacted Lourdes again and asked if she knew anything about John being unfaithful or having affairs. She told them that he'd seen other women in the past, but she didn't think he was involved in a murder. She was really upset when she found out that John had been having this affair with Michelle, which she just learned for the first time when the police told her, which, gosh, that would just be so, that would yeah. just be a lot to hear, you know, from not only are they investigating him for something, but now they're also telling you this, like, terrible news that he was having an affair. Right. In the meantime, Michelle was growing more and more paranoid about what the police knew. As we said, they weren't speaking to her, so she would just ask John about his encounters with the officers to try and see kind of where they were at with their investigation. She was so paranoid that the police were spying on her and John that she actually hired a service to come to her house to make sure there were no bugs or recording devices planted in there. That's a very specific company, isn't it? <laughs> I did not, right? I did not know that you could just hire somebody to come. I mean, I guess it makes sense you could hire somebody to come sweep your house, but I feel like, I mean, I, I just feel like I think that you're going to have a lot be, of questions. Right. Well, yeah, but I mean, I guess if that's their business, I don't know. That's just. It, it's something I feel like you would only have done if you were like a super top secret. Like, I don't know. It just seems weird to have like that when you're just a regular person. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, maybe it's what exterminators do. They kill your bugs and they kill your bugs. So right. maybe we just didn't know there's a whole separate service we're paying for. <laughs> right. During this whole time, John pretty much moved in with Michelle. And on February 1st of 2001, somebody reported that there was this man parking at the side of Michelle's house and then going in through the garage. And this had been happening for three days straight. The caller gave a license plate number on the vehicle, which came back to John. When they learned that Michelle and John were seeing each other in secret, they started to run surveillance on Michelle. From February 8th to February 12th, Michelle and John were gone. They went on a trip to Florida, but the officers kept working. On the 12th, they got records from John's phone and saw that he made a call to Army Sergeant Peyton Donald the day after the shooting at 10.43 a.m. Peyton later informed police that he let John borrow a 9mm pistol and that John still had the pistol on the day of the murder and did not return this gun until a few days after the shooting. 
he told the detective that in a weird twist, John actually called and asked to borrow the gun again in the recent past, but he didn't tell him why he needed it. So the police wanted to set John up to confess that he knew where this potential murder weapon was, and they had Peyton call him up and ask him. John first said he didn't have the gun anymore, but then he told Peyton that he did have the gun and would bring it to him later that night. But, and what a stunning coincidence this is, John's car was allegedly broken into that very same afternoon, and he reported it to the military base and told them that a gun had been stolen from the vehicle where it was parked on base. Wow, that is, what a turn of events there. So the military officers that responded to this break-in thought it was suspicious from the go. The glass was broken on the passenger side, but the pieces of broken glass were only on the passenger side seat and floor, which was weird because in a smash and grab situation, there would be glass everywhere. To the officer, it seemed like a staged and fake break-in. But either way, being in possession of a privately owned firearm on an army base is illegal. So John was actually arrested and taken into an interrogation room. He told them that he'd been in Florida for the last several days with Michelle, but didn't mention anything about the affair they were having since it's illegal in the military. He was allowed to go back to his barracks, but he was under close watch. The next morning, John failed to show up for his PT formation at 6.30 a.m., and then he lied about where he was. After this incident, he was put on restriction, couldn't attend his college classes, and was forbidden from contacting Michelle. At this point, investigators believed that John had faked that car break-in so that he could get rid of the gun. They felt that now they had more than enough evidence against John to arrest him. John was taken to the brig at Camp Lejeune after his arrest. He was deemed to be a flight risk and denied the military's version of bail. Since he was not allowed to speak to Michelle, the two of them started communicating through a third person, and that was John's sister. She also sent John locks of her hair and silver wedding bands while he was in jail, which the police believed was a ploy to see if she could get him to marry her since married couples cannot testify against each other in court. On March 9th, officials publicly announced that John Diamond was suspected in the murder of Marty Thier. On March 14th, he was charged with adultery, wrongfully transporting and storing a privately owned weapon in a privately owned car on post, impeding an investigation by wrongfully disposing of evidence, conspiracy to murder, and murder. The news of these charges was a shock to Michelle, and she became very upset. She left town to visit her family in Colorado, but didn't talk to them much while she was there. Her house was later searched, and her electronic devices were also taken. At this time, Michelle was feeling pretty isolated and alone because word of her affair had reached most of her friends and family, and some of them just stopped supporting her. The next month, John's wife, Lourdes, came forward and told police that she had actually lied in their early interviews, too, but that she did not want to go forward with lying under oath, you know, whenever they went to court. The night that Marty was killed, Lourdes said that John did come over to watch the Patriot, but he was interrupted by a phone call, which he took in the other room. And when the police heard this, they're thinking, okay, when he got that phone call, that must have been when Michelle called from the bathroom at the restaurant that night. Lorda said that John got dressed and left, and she didn't see him again until the next morning. But Lourdes's mom said that she heard John come home late that night. While John was behind bars awaiting trial for murder, Michelle was out living free. She continued to travel and spent more time in Florida and Los Angeles and continued to spend a lot of money that she really didn't even have. She was just racking up a lot of debt at this point. She also changed her last name back to her maiden name. On August 20th, John's trial finally began. 
He chose to have a military jury with four officers and two enlisted members, and he pled guilty to the charges of transporting a gun and adultery. For those, he received three years in jail and a dishonorable discharge. For the charges of murder and conspiracy, John pleaded not guilty, and the trial proceeded. Prosecutors explained the timeline they believed the events of the murder occurred that night and alleged that Michelle had intentionally waited to have Marty killed until after he received his reenlistment bonus because she wanted that money and his life insurance money to use to move to Saba. They alleged that the evidence showed that when Michelle had Marty take her back to her office that night, she knew she was setting him up to be killed and going inside her office was really just for her own cover story. John, who as we mentioned was a train sniper ambushed Marty and shot him when he went up the stairs to find Michelle. They alleged that John then picked up as many of the shell casings as he could and ran off, making sure to visit the gun range the next day so that he'd have gun residue on his hands for a legitimate reason. As for John's defense, they pretty much threw Michelle under the bus and pointed at her as being the true killer. They said that she asked Marty to go up the stairs to get her book and that she got the gun out from under the seat of the car and came out firing. Then she picked up the keys, ran up the stairs, and grabbed her books and left the keys inside. Then she went back downstairs and called the police from the video store. The defense claimed that this was Michelle's plan all along and that she intended to frame John for the murder from the beginning. According to the defense, Michelle had lied to John on numerous occasions about some alleged abuse that took place at Marty's hand. So they suggested that Michelle actually talked John into borrowing a gun to give her for her protection. According to the story that John told under oath, Michelle called him on December 16th and told him that Marty had raped her and that she wanted to kill him. John suggested that Michelle could kill Marty inside their home and make it look like he was shot by an intruder. And that's when Michelle allegedly asked John to help her get a gun. According to the defense theory, it was either December 14th or 15th when John got the gun from his friend Peyton, and he took it to Michelle's office to give to her. He claims that Michelle put the gun in her desk, and he didn't know what she did with it after that. On the day of the murder, Michelle and John met up for lunch, and she asked John to meet her at her office at 11 p.m. that night. He says that he did show up, but he had no clue that Michelle was planning to kill her husband that night. He said that he heard the gunshots and ran over to see what happened, and he allegedly saw Michelle standing over John with the gun pointed at him. John said he told Michelle to get away and call for help and that he would dispose of the gun. So he allegedly, I feel like we're saying that a lot because this is all just the theories that have been presented in court from each side. So the defense is saying that John allegedly put the gun in a bag on top of his closet and then took it to the range the next day and fired it. The two of them later filed off the serial numbers on the gun and disposed of it in pieces on their trip to Florida. He claimed it was supposedly Michelle who came up with the idea of a staged car break-in to explain why John couldn't produce the gun for police when they came asking for it. Michelle allegedly told John she would help him find his way out of this whole mess, but after he was sent to serve time in Leavenworth, she actually stopped communicating with him. Michelle was allowed to testify at John's trial, but she chose to invoke her Fifth Amendment right and didn't really say a whole lot. She was clearly trying to avoid incriminating herself on the stand. On August 24th, three hours and 15 minutes after the jury dismissed for deliberation, they came back with a verdict. John Diamond was found guilty on all counts, and he showed no emotion as he officially became a convicted murderer. He was sentenced to life without parole. John's lawyer later submitted a proffer to try and get a reduced sentence for his client in exchange for having him testify against Michelle in court, but he never did take this deal and his sentence was never reduced. 
As for Michelle, she was living in New Orleans with her grandmother in the fall of 2001, and her sister Angela said that during this time, Michelle was withdrawn and scared. She still hadn't been able to find work because her psychologist's license was no good in the state of Louisiana. Although she tried to date again, things didn't really work out with anyone, and Michelle felt like she really had nothing. It took some time, but in May of 2002, Michelle was finally indicted on first-degree murder charges. When police went to arrest her, though, she was nowhere to be found. She had actually packed up much of her belongings into a storage unit and some stuff into a moving truck, and she literally just went on the lam. The first night, she drove just 30 miles away and stayed in a hotel until lunchtime the next day. Then she drove a couple of hours and checked into another hotel where she stayed for two nights, got her hair cut shorter, and dyed it blonde. She then moved to another hotel for the next two nights before traveling to Florida in late May of 2002. Although she was on the run, she really didn't seem to be putting much effort into hiding. On June 1st, she signed a six-month lease in Lauderdale-by-the-Sea, Florida, with an alias, and she also told the landlady that she was fleeing an abusive relationship and needed privacy and discretion. She settled into Florida, and she even started dating a 25-year-old she met at a bar. While in Florida, Michelle also underwent plastic surgery to further alter her appearance. She had a nose job as well as work on her eyelids and her jawline. When people saw her post-surgery face, she told them all, including her new boyfriend, that she'd been in an accident. Things were going pretty good for Michelle while she hid from the authorities until she made one mistake that unraveled the whole thing. She asked her new boyfriend named Dana to take a prepaid calling card with him on a trip to Nebraska that he was taking to visit his family. Michelle wanted him to use his calling card to contact her father and relay messages to him. This was not a great idea. Michelle's father reported the call and police were able to trace it back to a random address in Nebraska. Ooh, that is, that's, you know, I love a dad that's going to rat, rat your daughter out. That's pretty amazing that he did that. Right. It's shocking. Yeah, I agree for sure. So the address that they traced this back to had no connection to Michelle, of course, which was her whole entire point of having him do this from Nebraska because it didn't have anything to do with her. But the police kept digging, and they realized that somebody who previously lived at this Nebraska address, who was Dana, was now living in Fort Lauderdale. So they figured that this person, by looking at his age, must be Michelle's new boyfriend or at least a friend of hers. So they figured out where he was living in Florida, and they started running surveillance on him. Six days later, he was back in Florida, and he was on his way to visit Michelle with a bag of fresh Wendy's hamburgers in tow. But he realized while he was driving that he was actually being followed by an undercover officer. He tried to lose the officer, but he couldn't. And before long, there were federal agents surrounding him and demanding to know where Michelle was. Dana caved and gave the police her address. When Marshall showed up at her door, she tried to claim that she was not Michelle Thier. She was somebody else named Liza. But the police knew it was her and pretty much told her as much. They said, you know why we're here. You, we know that you are Michelle Thier. And she was then placed under arrest for conspiracy to commit murder and first-degree murder. After her arrest, police found several incriminating items inside her apartment, including books about how to make fake IDs and live under the radar. They also found other fake documents, including a birth certificate and driver's licenses. Because of her recent plastic surgery wounds, she was actually taken to a hospital instead of the jail. When she was healed enough, she was extradited back to North Carolina to face her charges. She was in serious debt by this time after spending money when she had no income, so she could not afford a private attorney and had to have a court-appointed attorney. 
Michelle was offered two different plea deals, from one from each side. Her defense suggested that she plead guilty to accessory after the fact and agree to a 93-month prison sentence. And prosecutors wanted her to plead guilty to conspiracy or plead guilty to second-degree murder, and she would serve between 94 to 120 months in jail. Michelle actually refused both of those plea deals and opted to go before a jury in a trial, which we see this every now and then where they're given these plea deals and it's like, wow, that is actually a really good deal. You would be an idiot to not take it. And then they don't take it. They decide they have better chances with a jury and sometimes it works out for them. But I would say the majority of the time you should take the plea deal if you are offered one because it doesn't always work out better for you to go before a jury. Yeah, I think it worked out better for Casey Anthony, and that's about it. I mean, really, there's not been a lot of people I can think of that skipped the plea deal and didn't get, like, life in prison or something crazy. Yeah. It's got to be such a, I don't know, like an ego thing, or I I don't know what it is exactly, where it's just you have so much confidence. Or maybe you believe your own lie. I don't know what it is, but... Oh, but no, it's like if you, you if you show me my two options and you say, okay, even if I get the maximum that, you know, the prosecution wants, that's only 10 years in prison, or I have the option of a jury sentencing me, you know, if they find me guilty of murder, I could go to jail for life. So I feel like how do you even look at those two options and be like, life, 10 years, life, 10 years, and then say, oh, I'm going to risk it and go get a, go have a trial? Like, that's just crazy to me that you would even chance it I at know. that point. I feel like if you were really not guilty, though, I can see how you'd be like, there's no way people will see that I'm guilty. There has to be reasonable doubt. But in these cases, when there's a lot of evidence stacked up against you and, you know, if this person is truly guilty, then I don't see how you don't say, yeah, let's just do the 10 years and I'll probably get off early for good behavior. And, you know, maybe I can have more plastic surgery and go back to the hospital. I just (laughs) I don't get it. So. Michelle's trial ended up beginning in September of 2004, and prosecutors presented the same theory as the one from John's trial, but her defense was a bit different. They alleged that the police did not conduct a thorough investigation, they never dusted Michelle's office for fingerprints, and said that the crime scene was literally hosed down at the end of the night, making it impossible to spend more time processing the evidence. The defense stated that once the police had the idea that Michelle and John had something to do with the murder, the case wasn't properly investigated from that point on, and they didn't even look into other suspects. A psychologist testified that she believed Michelle had more structure when she was attending school, but when she and Marty moved to North Carolina, things really went downhill. With Marty gone all the time, Michelle slipped into an emotionally fragile state and reached out for attention from other men. The psychologist said that it was too hard for Michelle to end things with John because he was emotionally manipulative, such as the time he threatened suicide when Michelle had tried to break things off. It was also alleged that Michelle was suffering from PTSD in the wake of Marty's murder. The jury in this case spent three hours deliberating, and on December 3, 2004, they found her guilty on both counts. She had no reaction and remained frozen in the courtroom when she was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole and a minimum of 13 additional years for conspiracy to commit murder. To this day, she insists that she's innocent and that she is nothing more than a woman that was wronged by police, prosecutors, press, and John. She is incarcerated in NCCI Women in North Carolina. The extremes that this lady went to not be caught to go down to having uh plastic surgery and you know you hear cutting your hair and dyeing your you know dyeing your hair and all that stuff but plastic surgery and stuff wow can you imagine right I know well and then you know it is always so mind mind boggling when you know and now she like maintains her innocence and everything but it's like well 
I don't know. Would an innocent person do all of that? Would you run away and then go like change your identity and change the way you look and everything? Like if you truly were not guilty, like that doesn't, I I don't know. It just doesn't seem like the actions of somebody who had nothing to do with the crime. Why do I feel like that happened in the movie Fugitive? Or maybe it didn't, but I feel like there I was don't some know. hair dyeing and stuff. <laughs> There was a one-armed man, I know that, and Harrison Ford. What am I, I love that movie. I need to watch that movie again. I think something like that went on. I'm probably wrong. But yeah, no, it's a lot of, I don't know. It's That that story is pretty crazy altogether, just the amount of possible planning that was going on, just waiting for him to get this bonus. And I don't know. There's just a lot of, there's just a lot going on in that story. There's just a, a lot. Well, all of it down to when they were kind of trying to cover their tracks and then it's like they had all these lies going at once and that's when I feel like things really start to spiral. Like I think they had to have known by the point that they're making up the story about the gun getting stolen. They have to know. Oh, like gosh. there's no way they're going to continue to get away with this. Like everything is just too outrageous at this point. Like that's just that's too many stories and lies that you have going at one time and and all of them are suspicious, especially when you put them together. Absolutely. Yeah, one thing oh, there's a saying about that. One thing's a coincidence. Oh, I'm not even going to try to do it, but <laughs> <laughs> there's a thing people say. But yeah, there's just too many things where you're like, "Huh, no, not all of this together. There's just no way." So, yeah, that is a crazy story. One that I don't think I'm I feel like we talked about this one before. I think it was on our list a while ago, but but I didn't really have any um knowledge of it before we talked about it. Yeah. So one of the main sources of information for this episode came from a book called The Officer's Wife by Michael Freeman. So if you are interested in more details, and there are much more details about this case, um, you can check out that book. I just wanted to give that a shout out before we move on to our last thing before we go. All right, Mandy, last thing before we go this week, we talked about the state of North Carolina. We talked about several states. Florida even came in here. Of course, Florida came in here. But so I went to look for um, uh, crazy North Carolina laws that I had not heard of. And I'm thinking you probably haven't heard them either. So we're going to play fill in the blank. Last thing before we go, fill in the blank. These laws that are really kind of crazy. So which of course are crazy. Yes. Okay. So Mandy, fill in the blank. No one in North Carolina may be a professional fortune teller, and if one wishes to pursue the practice as an amateur, it must be practiced where? So you cannot be a professional fortune teller, but if you're just like doing it on the side, where can you do that? Your what location? back porch. Oh, I like that. You can do it in a <laughs> school or a church. Which really? What? Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> Those are like the two places I would think would like be off limits, right? And I would even think there they would be like only professionals can do it here, not right. you amateurs. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was a weird one. So, Mandy, if a man and a woman who aren't married go to a hotel slash motel and register themselves as married, much like the people in our story did when they went to uh, Saba, um, according to state law in North Carolina, they are considered to be what? Um, liars? <laughs> <laughs> Not what do we call them. No, they're said to be legally married. So I don't know if that's like a crazy... What? Yeah. What? I don't know if All you have a... to do is check check into a hotel and you're married? <laughs> yeah. I bet Britney Spears could have still been married to Jason Alexander if she'd done this in North Carolina. <laughs> oh, goodness. So, uh, Mandy, next one. Organizations may not hold their meetings while the members that are present are what? This one... If you got this one, I'd give you a million dollars because it's really kind of crazy. Um, Sleeping? So if you're having a meeting, yeah, what can the pre- the members not be doing? 
sleeping. <laughs> yeah, sleeping is true, but in costume. How what? did this get made? Yeah. How did this like, get made? It's obviously happened. Right. When they're like, you know, fool us once, but you can't do this to us twice. Right. You got one <laughs> one chance to do this. So next one, Mandy. Bingo games may not last over five hours unless they're held where? I don't know. This one, we actually went to a place like this one time, our families, and I don't think we went to the bingo part of it. It's a fair. Not an affair, but a fair. Oh, yeah. oh, at a fair, you can yeah. have longer bingo sessions. Who's playing everyone. a five-hour bingo game? Uh, right? For everyone who wants to play more than five hours of bingo. Yes. <laughs> and so the last question is, what is not allowed at a bingo game in North Carolina? Alcohol. Very smart. Although if you're playing a five-hour <laughs> game, I have questions about that. There's no right. way. <laughs> one of those rules turned into the other one. So, Right. You wouldn't be playing five hours right. without alcohol. <laughs> yeah. After that, they're like, no, there's a new law. They're like, but we're going to take alcohol. And they're like, dang it. You beat me to it. <laughs> right. <laughs> those are fun. I know. I like seeing the weird, fun laws that each state has. I know we have like some really stupid ones oh, here in yeah. Florida. Like, the popular one that a lot of people know is that you can't cross a street with a ice cream cone in your back pocket or something crazy like that. Oh yeah. Um, but yeah, it's like who who is who's out here doing that? Who is putting ice cream in their pockets? And you know what that is? Bed? That's a bad breakup. And somebody was like, you know what my ex girlfriend does every Friday night? She walks across <laughs> the street with ice cream in her back pocket. We're gonna get her. <laughs> And then like swear to everybody. People do this all the time, guys. It's very illegal. It's not right. just her. I'm, I'm over it. I promise. <laughs> right. It's a real problem. <laughs> all right, guys. Well, that was it for this week. We will be back next week with, wait, I've already forgot. Same time, same place, news story. Have a great week. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.